What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Janelle. I'm Vicky. We're here for another wonderful episode to walk down Murder Lane with you. Oh, poor Yay. choice of words. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> A jolly jaunt down Murder Lane. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. We are back again. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We got a great show for you, as I always say. I'd, it might not ever be true, but I always say it. it seems to set the uh, tone. Each one is greater than the last. <laughs> yes. Uh, but first, we're going to head over to the newsroom. So our news today comes from CWB Chicago about a man stealing a tow truck. <laughs> and that's the story. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. Elliot Scott, who's 22, he is charged with aggravated possession of a stolen motor vehicle, misdemeanor theft, and driving a suspended or revoked license. But the interesting part about this is, so he stole a towing company's truck but mm-hmm. then he called 911 because he was upset that the truck driver pulled a gun on him. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> what's Newton's law? For every reaction, there is an opposite and equal reaction. <laughs> yeah, I I guess. <laughs> hmm, who would have thought? <laughs> so he uh, stole the truck. The police went to, it's from Shy City Towing, and... So they went to the towing company. The towing company was able to give the police the GPS coordinates of the truck. And so they were on their way to that location when Mr. Scott called 911 to say that he had stolen the truck and he was upset about this gun being pulled on him. So (laughs) when they found the truck, he was taken into custody immediately. And that's that. All right. Also sounded like you kept saying Michael Scott. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Scott. Michael Scott. 
<laughs> um, so I guess the lesson is don't call 911 if you're <laughs> ever in the midst of, <laughs> of committing a crime. <laughs> Moving right along to Netflix and Kill. This week, we are talking about Night Stalker, the hunt for yeah. a serial killer. Now, there has been buzz about this all around the office that I work at. <laughs> oh, really? I just gotta say yes <laughs> yeah okay so for those that don't know uh the night star night stalker refers to richard ramirez who was a serial mm-hmm. killer in california in the 1980s who raped and murdered numerous people the documentary really goes through his killing spree and the investigation in great detail there are some people reviewing this series it's a four-part series there's some people reviewing the series who are saying the documentary went way too far really how um i'm <laughs> i am only like an episode in so oh, i watched the whole thing okay so tell <laughs> what me were, what were they saying that what, what did they reference where they said it went too far I haven't seen a specific reference to everything, but or to anything, but my assumption is <laughs> that there is quite a bit of like archival footage from crime scene investigations and some other I mean, they showed some some crime scene footage, but it's not something that you wouldn't I mean, it's not explicit. Yes. It's not like they're showing explicit stuff. It's like blood-soaked beds and pictures of the people who were who survived but had gotten beaten up or shot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe my <laughs> maybe I'm skewed because I've seen far worse things than that. But it wasn't right. anything that was I don't think was explicit in nature. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's this is actually an article from the New York Post. There's been claims of people after watching the series getting night terrors. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. It's the one true thing crime. that the one thing that they point out in this New York Post article, it says, quote, despite its disturbing subject matter, social media watchdogs were nonetheless shocked at the grisly crime scene photos and bloody reenactments that included a close-up shot of a knife sticking out of a body and blood falling in slow motion. Basically okay. saying there isn't a necessity <laughs> to include victim crime scene photos and slow-mo blood splatter. I'm going to make a counter-argument for that. Sure. The entire series is taken the, from the perspective of the officers who are investigating the crime and the victims or the victims' families. Right. They had to see that. They had to see that every goddamn time they went to a crime scene. Mm-hmm. In this series, it discusses the absolute toll that it took on these investigators. And in order for you to understand that, you have to look at the actual crimes that they had to walk in on. Right. It was blood everywhere. You need to understand the mindset of these investigators and know that it's not just some guy who's like shooting people. Like he was torturing people. Right. And it was grandmas and ladies who lived alone. It was any and every person. There was no MO. It was multiple different races, men and women. And he was also assaulting children at the same time, which is no one's going to make those connections. Right. So the thing is, have we heard anything from people who were actually in the documentary or other victims? Because then I would say, okay. 
No. If the victims are saying that it is too gruesome and they participated in this docuseries, then yeah, we should pull back a little bit. But also, if you're going to complain about a reenactment, go fuck yourself. There, there are there are horror movies that are far more convincing than that stupid ass reenactment that was on this docu series. Right, yeah. And I haven't seen anything from like the people involved like in the creation of the documentary saying or like the people who yeah. were interviewed saying that it was too much. I haven't seen it. When I like watched that, it, so. I was like, "Oh my god." Because you don't like in a normal story or in, in a podcast series or even other documentaries, you're not seeing the crime scene footage. You're not really even talking to a lot of the survivors. Mhm. You sure as shit were, no one discusses the, the sexual assault against the kids that he did. No one talks mm-hmm. about that because they wanted to refuse that it was even part of the case in the first place. Right. But, I mean, there were points where I was kind of like, oh, oh, you know, like, this is a little, Ugh. but you should have that reaction. Right. <laughs> if you see that and you don't have the reaction, I think you need to check your moral compass. Like, probably. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the point, the entire point of the true crime genre is to see these things happening, know that there are people out there, and learn about the behavior right and know how the the justice system is put together and how they react to it and what can be done better can we identify people with problems before they start committing these crimes can we solve crimes faster these are all the questions that we ask right it's not for the most part for most people it's not about the gruesomeness if you want that you can go watch a horror movie most Mm -hmm. people aren't interested in that that's not why they come to see or listen to true crime stories so I feel like people that complain about that are hopping on the bandwagon being like, oh, I've heard a lot about this Richard Ramirez thing. Let's check it out. And then they become horrified when they see crime scene footage. Like, come on. Right. Yeah. I agree um, (laughs) with all of that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just get really, like, irritated with people. It's all good. (laughs) So that is Night Stalker on Netflix. Check it out. If you guys want to share your reactions with us, you can do so on our Facebook or our Twitter pages. I'd be Mm -hmm. interested to hear if you guys have any reactions to this. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We will be discussing instances of death. In my case, (laughs) I was going to say child death particularly. Yep. So heads up on this one. But Janelle, what are we talking about today? So, big old disclaimer, because you are listening to a crime podcast. Uh, yeah, it might be too graphic. No. It's too graphic, guys. <laughs> we are going to dive into some unsolved crimes. I hesitated Ooh. to say mysteries. <laughs> yeah. So, the case that I'm going to cover is the murder of Natasha Cleary and her two sons. This case is actually out of Rockford, Illinois, and it took place in 2011, Now, I kind of want to give a background of Rockford. I know I've talked about it before. We've covered cases. We've worked with Haunted Rockford. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's spiritual. Like, we have a connection with Rockford. Yes. (laughs) I used to work out there. So if you're not familiar with Rockford, it's a city that's considerably large. It's northwest of Chicago. It is the fourth largest city in the state. And it's a predominantly blue-collar town. And it hosted – I say hosted because it's moved out of the manufacturing business. Mm Mm-hmm. It's actually becoming a hub of aeronautics, which is pretty exciting. Oh, that's cool. And it has the Chrysler plant just outside of the city, which 
I say used to employ a lot of people because it really doesn't now. (laughs) The 20th century saw Rockford boom, and there was an influx of immigrants from Italy and Lithuania, as well as people fleeing from the South. The city began to grow exponentially, and when the 1980 recession hit, the city saw a steep decline in available jobs with a massive increase in crime rates. Unsolved cases were out of control, with most unsolved cases involving women and people of color. Okay. In the 90s, <laughs> there was an attempt to clean up the city and oh make it more hospitable, which aka always means we need to appeal to businesses and travel. <laughs> right. <laughs> which makes me want to punch everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. You don't care about the people living there. You care about what people you can bring there. <laughs> right. Right. So massive overhauls of the downtown were undertaken. If you go downtown Rockford now, it's kind of unrecognizable. It's completely different than the way it used to be, even when I was a kid, which Mm -hmm. is when they started to kind of rehab the whole area. They're, you know, in the process of doing another kind of like clean up the city. Um, They're kind of trying to do more public artwork out there. Yeah. Which is I don't think is succeeding because they're taking it from a travel like visitors bureau perspective and they're trying to make it a destination of art and like hiring artists that aren't rockford artists and it's like a whole thing so if you're going to like clean up your city or you want to make it like better you should probably think about the people already living there Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you think so just my little two cents you (laughs) think that they would also want to make it better too right It's great if you want to beautify all the abandoned buildings, but, like, you have a massive homeless problem. Why don't you turn those buildings into, I don't know, free housing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. Oh, my God. (laughs) Too radical. I know. I am literally too radical. (laughs) So, (laughs) crime was still a major problem, even though they were slapping coats of paints on everything. (laughs) The police department during this time when they were like, we're going to clean up the city, was being cited and is still being cited several times for discriminatory practices, the most recent one being uh, December of 2020. (laughs) Shocking. This isn't news. I mean, if you've watched any of the protests coming out of Rockford, they are taking on a tone very close to Portland. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, it's scary. (laughs) The force in which the tiny-ass Rockford Police Department is taking with the small group of people protesting police brutality. But whatever. So, this isn't news because, really, the state of Rockford is like this. Even the school district was sued for segregating students, and the case was cited from the 90s to the early 2000s is when they were being sued for segregation of students. Wow. Which is yeah. like very late in <laughs> it's it's too fucking late <laughs> time to still be having these issues. I know we've talked about it before, like in the South, they still mm-hmm. there are still some places that are like just now desegregating schools, which is so crazy. That's fucked up. I worked within the school district in Rockford briefly. I was kind of contracted to do art classes as part of an after-school program. So I was in the schools that didn't have art, regular art classes or significantly reduced art classes in the elementary schools. Mm-hmm. And it's because these schools were in the not-so-good neighborhoods, as they put it. And they were the schools of the lower lowest-performing students. Right. 
So I would go in there and I would do these really like the kids were really into it. It was me and the science. There was a science museum that would come and we would kind of tag team and do art and science together. And I was the only white person in the entire building. I There are still issues with segregation yeah. in that town. And they're also closing. They have went through in the 90s. They closed a bunch of schools in all of these neighborhoods where they were forcing kids to travel across town to schools yeah. way outside of their neighborhoods. There, you know, there is a lot of administrative issues within the police department, the school system, and the government really in general. But I wanted to talk a little bit about clearance rates for unsolved murders in Rockford. We've talked about clearance rates before, and this is the rate at which an unsolved crime is solved. So this little chart starts in 2005, and it looks great. They have an 85% clearance rate, which is amazing, right? Yeah. I think like the national average is like 60-some, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And then it kind of declines a little bit in the 2009. It's at 59%. And then we see in 2015, just five, six now, short years ago, it drops to 16% clearance rate. What was going on there? And now it's about 52, 50% clearance rates. I'm not exactly sure why it was so low, but 2015, 2016, if you go back and read newspapers about Rockford, was a very bloody time. Mm-hmm. Every day, there were multiple reportings of people being shot or stabbed, which is, you know, real sad right. <laughs> in and of itself. But also, this is the t- my grandmother moved from the south up here and lived in Rockford literally that year. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a little discerning <laughs> my you know she's not you know she wasn't a person who couldn't take care of herself but you definitely don't want to put an older woman in that kind of predicament right right so it's it's a little sketch <laughs> yeah but the clearance rates have not improved right so like if you in 2005 to 2015 a 10 year difference it drops down like 70% <laughs> That's a huge, that's huge. That's a lot. (laughs) That's like solving almost nothing within a year. Exactly. So we're going to talk about a case that came out of 2011. And during that year, there was a 71% clearance rate. And Vicky brought up a really great point about how things are being solved. There have been cases of police misconduct within the Rockford Police Department of tactics where they are arresting people and holding them and not charging them and bringing in witnesses that aren't actually witnesses. So there there are issues within this police department, just like you would find in Chicago or New York or other cities where police corruption is prevalent. <laughs> it can even happen. Yeah. The reason I say it almost looks too good is because there mm-hmm. have been instances in police departments across the country where their clearance rate for cases is so high because – for instance, what they will do in like a like a sexual assault or a rape case is they will close the case without mm-hmm. notifying the victim. Solving it. <laughs> and so you'll have cases where victims of rape and sexual assault are like, I thought this was still an ongoing thing. And they had just decided to close it because mm-hmm. they said either the witness wasn't willing to cooperate or, you know, some kind of bullshit something. 
mm-hmm. just so that their clearance yes. rate will look better. Exactly. And a lot of times things are cleared because they determine that they could never be solved. Right, right. Which is absolutely absurd. So. Yeah. <laughs> On April 17th of 2011 at 4.30 a.m., the home of Natasha Cleary and her two sons, Marquan Owens, who was 12, and Katerion Fryer, who was two, on Canterbury Lane, was on fire. Once the blaze was put out, fire investigation crews found the bodies of Natasha, Marquan, and Katerion inside. Now, Natasha was born um, in January of 1981 in Rockford, Illinois, a native. Natasha was employed as a debt collector at Vision Financial. She attended Guilford High School and later graduated from OIC and was currently attending Regency Beauty College. At the time of her death, Natasha was 12 days away from closing on a new home where one day she had hoped to operate a hair salon. Marquand was a sixth grade student at Kennedy Middle School, and he played basketball for Kenrock Community Center and football for Kennedy Middle School. Katerian Fryer was just two years old. He just started going to a daycare and was, you know, just a little bitty baby. Yeah. In the reports from the coroner's office, it stated, Upon investigation, bullet wounds were found in all three victims. There was no soot in their lungs, which led the coroner to state that they were shot and killed before the fire had started. Okay. Now, that's pretty common. People seem to think that fire cleans a crime scene, and it sure doesn't. (laughs) No, it does not. Especially now, with all the forensics. With cases like this, usually the first thought by investigators is someone in the family perpetrating the crime or someone close to the family. So initially, investigation of Natasha's exes and the fathers of her sons were the main focus. Okay. Natasha's ex-husband and father of Katerion, Katanka Fryer, in particular, appeared to be a main suspect, even though officials did not publicly state it as such. Katanka had a criminal record. He was connected with the 1992 murder of Gregory Masias, who was a supposed Latin King member. Fryer pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, according to a plea agreement. And in an unrelated case, Fryer was sentenced to eight years in prison for aggravated battery. But it doesn't sound like he served the full time for that either. He was sentenced to 24 months in prison for the connection to the murder of Gregory Masias. I don't think he served that full time. It was very difficult to try to find records on some of these people because we'll discuss the issues with Rockford Police Department's website. Um, Right, yeah. (laughs) It's a little fucked up. (laughs) It's real fucked up. Yeah. Uh, Kataka Fryer was arrested the day of the fire on a supposed warrant for stalking charges. They arrested him as he came up to the house that was on fire because someone had told him that his ex-wife's house was on fire. So he walked over there and like, what the fuck? And they arrested him right on the spot. Before they even knew that she had been shot. Okay. So, (laughs) according to police records, the stalking that he had a warrant for was supposedly committed between September 2010 and April 11th, 2011. To me, it kind of seems like they used this as a basis to bring him in for questioning, and they wound up holding him for a considerably long time. Okay. In July of 2011, Katanka appeared before a judge hoping to have his bond, which was set at $500,000. He wanted it reduced. Instead, the assistant Winnebago County State's attorney told the judge that they would be presenting additional charges in front of a grand jury. In a letter sent to the Rockford Register Star later that month, Fryer stated, and I quote, I never murdered my ex-wife or children, nor is there any evidence that links me to this crime. But nevertheless, I have been here at the Winnebago County Justice Center since the day the incident occurred. 
I was placed in a camera cell in a segregation unit, nude except for a Ferguson suit, even after never stating I had suicidal intentions. And if you're not familiar with a Ferguson suit, I put a picture of it, but it's a suit to detain individuals who have stated that they want to self-harm. It's basically a burlap sack. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like a padded moo-moo. Yeah, it looks like a a smock you used to wear in kindergarten. Yeah. (laughs) Minus the pockets. Yes. So the case against Fryer was dropped in April of 2013, and he then was released from from jail. So he was in jail for a couple of years. (laughs) Now... This is not uncommon for Rockford Police Department. If you look at the cases from the summer of the um, all of the people who were arrested during the marches and protests, they were held for a long time. And people were trying to pay their bond and they refused to accept it. So I'm not surprised. In the days and weeks after the killings, several pieces of evidence were sent to the state crime lab, but nothing was found linking the crime to a suspect. The only shred of evidence that was found was the attempted use of Tasha's debit card at an ATM the day after the sling. Now, I want to warn you, the pictures that I put below are of from the ATM, and they spooked me the hell out. So just yeah, so you know, before you, if you haven't seen them already, they are fucking creepy. Yeah. The ATM snapped photos of a man in a ski mask and a dark peacoat attempting to withdraw money. The ATM was located at Northwest Bank at 3106 North Rockton Avenue. The man in the photo has yet to be identified, and I put the pictures below just so you can kind of see, like, they get real up close on this guy. And it looks like yeah. he's almost aware that they're taking his picture. Well, you had to think, too, if he thought ahead to wear a ski mask to the ATM, he had to know that there was cameras there. Because yes. it does look like he's looking, like, directly into the camera. Yeah, it, I think he was fully aware that the card was hot. Now, yeah. the location yeah. of the ATM is very interesting, and I put a map. I mapped out from where Natasha Clary's home was and where the ATM was, and they are extremely close in proximity. So we're talking about close proximity to the crime. The card was being used within a 24-hour period. I believe the individual who was in this picture is key in finding out what happened to Natasha Clary and her two sons. Whether or not they are directly responsible for the crime is up for debate, but they definitely fucking know something. Right. I mean, they had to look at the map. They probably know (laughs) whoever gave them the ATM card. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's a nine minute walk from her house to the bank. That's super fucking close. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Natasha's mother and siblings have been holding memorials yearly on April 17th since their deaths. In an interview in 2019, Cynthia Horton, who is Natasha's mother, stated, Somebody in this community knows what happened, but they just don't want to speak up, and it's hard. The Rockford Police Department vowed at the end of last year to start designating more time to cold cases that are open currently. This became kind of a thing because another case was solved, and so there was a lot of pushback because the case that was solved recently happened in the 80s, and it was a white woman. Okay. So... This case, Natasha Cleary's case, was the first to be featured in RPD's video series that they started in December of 2020. The series is described as their very own unsolved mysteries and was created to reinvigorate cold cases. We're going to play the short snippet that actually has people talking in it because most of it is video over picture, like text over pictures of the video. Um, And like it's memorials and their gravesite and the picture of the house. So we're just going to play the very short clip of the police officers actually talking in it. (laughs) Okay. And like I said, it's real fucking short, the talking. (laughs) 
not a whole lot of helpful information either. So another critique I have. (laughs) So as with any case, uh, investigative techniques, technologies change. What never changes is the fact that somebody in our community always knows. There's always someone out there who has information who, if provided to the investigators, could solve this case. And unfortunately, at this point, there's a people or a person who's getting away with a triple murder, including the murder of two children. We have still photos of an individual who attempted to use Natasha Cleary's ATM card. That individual obviously has information regarding this murder, or at least can point us in the right direction of who's responsible for this. Someone in the community knows who this person is. Somebody knows the identity of this person who tried to use her ATM card. Anytime someone loses their life to a, a murder, it's a tragedy. But when two of the victims are children, the most innocent among, you know, the most innocent members of our community, it's a particularly big tragedy. And the fact that people in our community would be willing to sit silent with information that could help bring the killer or killers to justice, it just adds to the tragedy. So they showed some pictures of the children, and um, then they give the information on who to contact if anyone has information. Okay. Now, just from your initial listening of that video, like, what what are your thoughts on what he was saying? He's basically just like, (laughs) I mean, he basically got on and said, we know somebody has information, so if you have any information, please contact us. That's basically the gist of all of that. Mm Mm-hmm. So here's my problem with the video. So that's only available for viewing on Facebook on Rockford Police Department's page. The messed up part about this, I'm going to put quotes on Endeavor, is that they're not, they're not giving us anything that is helpful whatsoever. These are all things that were put out into the news years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's it. They, they basically... That video is three minutes long, and it is one minute of him talking about information. The rest are all pictures and montages of the family, a few crime scene photos, and then the grainy black and white footage from the ATM. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful. I think they're wasting their time. I mean, I understand that you have to put that out there. Mm -hmm. You have to keep telling people what's happening, and maybe someone will have the guts to, to, like, actually say something. Right. But it's only on your Facebook page. Yeah. I personally don't follow the Facebook page of any police department. So how would I ever know that that existed? No, I'm surprised they wouldn't have it on their website somewhere. So this is the other thing. RPD's website, they don't have a link for cold cases or to submit tips. (laughs) That's weird. They have a link to Rockford Crime Stoppers. However, when you go to the Rockford Crime Stoppers website and click on the cold case tab, it redirects you to Winnebago County Sheriff's Department. When you go to their cold case tab, it lists only 24 open cold cases. And guess what? Hers isn't even on the list. Oh, my God. So they have some cases also that are listed on that list that have already been solved. Makes you wonder, like, how often (laughs) they actually update that page. (laughs) Right. If you want to start a big initiative where we're going to bring our clearance rate up and we're going to solve all of these cases, you should maybe have the information of all of the unsolved cases that are open so that people can actually look and see if they know anything. 
Right. If you're going to start putting videos out there, you need to blast that video everywhere. People aren't going to be going to a police department's Facebook page or YouTube channel to find information out. They're going to look at the news. They're going to look at a Rockford community page. You need to put it everywhere. This is a half-assed attempt to cover their ass for the lack of police work. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. So if you go onto that list, which I... I wanted to document this and I wanted to show how absolutely confusing and ridiculous it was because I actually initially went on there to fill out a FOIA request for a different case that I was going to cover of a different unsolved murder. And they have still not gotten back to me. Okay. So in my attempt to figure this out, I was like, all right, well, I should look at some other unsolved cases. And this is, this is the issue. I looked up the case of Tammy L. Tracy. Her murder was just solved on November 11th of 2020. It's still on the open unsolved case list in the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department website. Tracy went missing in 1987 and her skeletal remains were found in a forest preserve in April of 1988. They caught the guy. He's in jail. Her information's still up there. And when I looked up articles, I found the only reason I found Natasha Cleary's case is because they had covered... Tammy L. Tracy, and then mentioned Natasha Cleary's case at the bottom of the page. Gotcha. And how that, and it didn't even come because they were trying to find information about Natasha Cleary. It came out because they said they were starting a web series about unsolved murders in Rockford, and Natasha Cleary's case was the first one they were going to cover. That's how I found her information. Okay, so did they actually start a web series? That's the only one that's come out. And that came out in December of 2020. Oh, that was the, the video? That was the video. That was it. Oh. A three-minute dedication to a case that has been unsolved since 2011. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. No. It makes you wonder. <laughs> it does make you now, wonder. when we're recording this, of course, it's, you know, earlier than when this is coming out. So there might have been another one that's getting put up in between when we're recording this and when this is released. But I'm going to say probably not. Probably not. They're, they're real lazy over there. <laughs> yeah. And I bet you it took so much time to put that first one together. <laughs> right. So both websites lack significantly information. Police departments are supposed to be open with information and accessibility. And from my perusal of the websites, I would have to say that there isn't any accessibility whatsoever. So I would ask you, as our citizen sleuths out there, Go on the websites of the police departments in your area. Go on the website of the Rockford Police Department. Go on the website of the local county sheriff's department. Look it over. If you're not seeing any information or any easy accessibility to FOIA or any easy accessibility to current things that are happening at your police department, do something about it. Email. Talk to your news. Do something. Go to, you know a local open public forum for your city or your county. The police departments and the sheriff departments are supposed to have access for us so that we can get information, especially Mm -hmm. unsolved cases, especially crime stoppers, especially if they're asking for our help. We can't help them if they don't give us fucking information or way to get them information. Right, right. I went onto the Rockford Police Department page. It is connected to the City of Rockford website. If you go on there, the links that are on there are like 
oh, our community access. Uh, here's some things that we do to help people. Here's the RPD in the news doing positive stuff. And then it's like, oh, here's Rockford Crime Stoppers at the bottom. Here is a FOIA request here. And then they have a separate page for the investigation unit and then like another page for community outreach, whatever, whatever. The investigation unit just lists the officers and like one contact information. There's literally Mm -hmm. nowhere to send tips. There's no tip line. They redirect you to Crime Stoppers, but then they say, if you have tips, contact us. Well, where the fuck am I supposed to contact you? (laughs) It's just a big circle of bullshit. Yeah. So, if you have any information on the murder of Nakasha Cleary and her sons Marquan Owens and Katerian Fryer, contact the Rockford Police Department at this fucking number, 815-966-2900. Or, if you want to remain anonymous and you fucking hate the Rockford Police Department, you can call Rockford Crime Stoppers at 815-963-7867. And like I said... Take a look at your local police department. I did this where, like, where we live. I looked up our police department webpage months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Because as part of a lot of the protests that were going on is, was the whole thing of like, we need accessibility. We need to know who our police officers are. We need to know where we need to contact people. Like, if you want us to be okay with having police in general, then you need to be open and honest. And we need to know all the information that is accessible to citizens because a lot of police departments don't share that unless you ask for it and that is not right yeah so i went on our local police department webpage and i was like okay we live in a smaller town than rockford so they were listing names of people and they they had a little bit more information yeah but then in contrast like i went onto a police department page for one city over and they had nothing they had the name email address and phone number for the chief of police and that was it sounds about right they're like call 911 if it's an emergency literally they're like call 911 always (laughs) solid advice (laughs) so it's just yeah i think in order for us to reform police um you know if you're an abolitionist this you know doesn't apply but for people who want to have police in their community i don't know who would but if you want to There needs to be an exchange of information and there needs to be open communication. Otherwise, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how many reforms you do. There needs to be transparency. That's kind of key in any communication scenario, not just with police. But I mean, we have to hold people accountable. If that's your fucking job, then you need to fucking do your job. Amen. That's all I have to say. <laughs> do your job. If I'm do at my work and I'm not doing my job, they say, do your fucking job. <laughs> do your fucking job. Yeah. So that is the murder case of Natasha Cleary. What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. 
This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I was kind of excited for this one because oh, yeah. it gave me an opportunity <laughs> to talk about a case that. Has perplexed people for just over 75 years. Oh, I like the oldies. <laughs> yes, it is a classic mystery. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's one you've probably heard of, but it is the Sodder family mystery. Mm. <laughs> have you heard of that? I have. I haven't yes. read too much about it, so it's weird it is weird (laughs) i like a weird one so in fayetteville west virginia there was a fire that happened at the Sodder family home on christmas eve 1945 in total there were 10 members of the Sodder family husband and wife george and jenny Sodder. Uh, 23-year-old John, 21-year-old Joseph, 16-year-old George Jr., 17-year-old Marion, 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, 5-year-old Betty, and 3-year-old Sylvia. Damn, that's all their kids? (laughs) That's all of them, yeah. Are they they farmers? Because that sounds like a farm family. (laughs) Yeah, I think... They might have been. I know they definitely had like large, it sounded like a large property, but George did something related to transportation of coal. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, their oldest oldest son, Joseph, was, it was, this was like late in 1945. So Joseph was away sort of wrapping up things at the end of World War II. So he was serving in World War II and they were just finishing moving everybody out of the country. So he was still gone. So George and Jenny were spending Christmas Eve with their remaining nine kids. The evening had pretty much gone off without a hitch and the younger children had just received some new toys from Marion that she had bought and brought home from the dime store. So George and Jenny were ready to turn in for the night at approximately 10.30 p.m. and took their youngest child with them and allowed the other kids to stay up a little later to enjoy all of the new gifts. After everyone had gone to bed, 
around 12.30 a.m., the telephone rang. So Jenny quickly got up and answered it and heard a strange woman at what sounded like a party on the other end of the phone line. And so she told them that they had the wrong number and then hung up. On her way back to bed, Jenny noticed the downstairs lights were still on, the curtains were still open, and the front door was unlocked. So she went down, she kind of like closed up the house, and then returned to bed. As Jenny was falling asleep, she heard a loud bang on the roof, and then a rolling sound, as if something was like rolling down the roof. Santa Claus? (laughs) Santa? (laughs) He just fell off the roof. Isn't that the beginning of the movie to the- Santa Claus. the Santa Claus? <laughs> yeah. When <laughs> Tim Allen becomes Santa Claus. Did we, for, did we forget that Santa literally dies <laughs> in the beginning of that movie? It's, it's not – a that was the 90s, right? It's not a 90s movie unless it starts off dark. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but after she heard this, she didn't hear any sounds after that. She kind of like listened out to see if there was going to be something else and there wasn't. So she tried to go back asleep again. About an hour later – Jenny woke up again, but this time she woke up to their house filling with smoke. Most of the family woke up and attempted to escape the blaze. George and Jenny scooped up their youngest daughter and rushed out along with Marion, John, and George Jr. So George Sr. went, got all of those guys out, and then went to go back into the house to get the younger kids from upstairs. But the path to the stairs had been blocked by the fire. So instead, he was like, oh, I know, I'll grab the ladder that's up against the side of the house, because they kept a ladder, a ladder on the side of the house, mm-hmm. climb in the second story 1940s. window. <laughs> yep. So he goes to get the ladder, but the ladder that he normally had propped up against the house to climb into the upstairs window had mysteriously disappeared. Hmm. Almost like someone was on the roof. (laughs) Weird, right? (laughs) So then he thought, I'll go grab one of the coal trucks and drive it up to the back of the house and then use the top of the coal truck to get into the second story and Mm -hmm. climb up into the window that way. Wow, he's really thinking. (laughs) Right? I'm I'm actually impressed because of his thought process. Like, okay, this Mm -hmm. isn't working. I'm going to try this. Because that's a very high stress situation. I would probably yeah. get poo brain <laughs> i'd just be screaming for the kids to jump out the window <laughs> jump yeah. i'll get you get out here <laughs> yeah so he goes to start the truck but it wouldn't start <gasps> were all the spark plugs gone <laughs> well we will get to that okay <laughs> that'll make a 1940s truck stop real quick <laughs> yeah right <laughs> The next plan was to grab a nearby water bucket and get water from their rain barrel. But when he went to go get water, the water had been frozen solid. That's just nature. That's not actually that mysterious. That's just winter. Yeah. (laughs) Someone mysteriously elsa the shit out of it. (laughs) Yeah. It was Christmas Eve, so the water was probably frozen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, in the meantime, their oldest daughter, Marion, had attempted to phone the Fayetteville Fire Department, but when she tried to call out from the house, she couldn't because their phone line was dead. Yeah. Instead, she ran to a neighbor's house to use their phone, but when she called, she wasn't able to get an answer at the fire department. Hmm. Another neighbor who also saw the house on fire went to a nearby tavern and attempted to call the fire department themselves, but they still didn't get an answer. (gasps) Did they cut the lines at the fire department? (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh my god, <laughs> what a master plan that would be. Wait, isn't this switch oper- like switchboard operator times? Uh, the f- 1945? Yeah. Don't they still have switchboard operators? Isn't it like someone plugging it literally into there and being like, operator here, we have a phone call from 6571 Main Street. <laughs> Maybe. But did they do, did you have a direct line to emergency services or was that all done by switchboard two? I think that was switchboard. I don't think like 911 for sure was not a thing. And I feel like I don't think people had direct lines. And this, is this a rural area too? Yeah. So then it is because uh, it's a very that small town fire even more. Yeah, there. Because my grand, my grandmother in Cleveland was a switchboard operator. <laughs> I'm curious to see. Oh my god, nine one one wasn't the first it's call new. to nine one one was placed in February of 1968. Yeah, and nine one one wasn't even everywhere. Like people had different numbers for nine one one. I didn't know that. That's wild. (laughs) That's not that long ago. I know. That's why I'm saying like, and back in the 40s, cities started to have more direct lines where you could ring the number. Yeah. But rural areas, because my grandmother who lived in, um, she lived in uh, North Carolina at this time. Mm -hmm. They, They had switchboard operators and she lived in a very, very rural community in North Carolina. So that's why I'm like, this is Virginia. So I feel like they would yeah. have a switchboard operator. <laughs> yeah. I don't <laughs> Which, know. That's man. why I'm like, if the if the phone line's cut, the switchboard operator can connect into it, but it wouldn't ring or anything. Yeah. So I'll tell you the lines to the fire department were not cut. They just didn't have okay. anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's probably a volunteer fire department, so you know how that goes. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking too. <laughs> a because <bucket> <laughs> When when this neighbor who had gone to the tavern to call, when they didn't get an answer, they decided – they took it upon themselves. They went into town, found the fire chief, who then started the process of something very – I feel like this is like classic small town shit mm-hmm. – started the process of calling the phone tree. Oh, my God. At that point, wouldn't you just get in your truck and just go to their house and ring the bell and be like, get it? <laughs> you would think so. But right? for – and. I do want to say, if we have younger listeners who don't know what a phone tree is, the idea <laughs> is that you have one person that calls, like, two people, and then those two people each call two people, and those people each call two people until everybody on the list is called. You know, if the person who's listening who doesn't know what a phone tree is, yeah. they probably don't know what a phone line is either. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I'm pointing this out. Phones used to be connected to actual cables where you could have it in your home. <laughs> This makes me sound like an old maiden, but kids nowadays do not know, like, rotary phones. They're like, what mm-hmm. the fuck is this thing? It's weird. Yeah. But whatever. Kids these days. <laughs> kids these days. Those darn kids on my lawn yelling that they don't Ugh. know what rotary phones are. We're old curmudgeons, Vicky. <laughs> yeah, I know. When did it happen? Me turning mm-hmm. into a curmudgeon slowly happened over the course of the last That's 30 true. years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... By the time the fire department arrived at the Sodder family residence, it was 8 a.m. The fire (laughs) was seven hours after. Wow. At that point, like, just quit. (laughs) Right. And so by, by the time they got there, there was nothing left of the home but ash. Yeah. So they began searching the burned piles for any sign of the remaining five children that were trapped inside. 
but they were unable to find any remains. Hmm. Which is interesting when earlier you were like, fire doesn't get rid of everything. And I'm like, unless it does, <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> unless they also. were never there in the first place. <laughs> Ooh, maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the fire chief told the Sodder family that he believed the fire would not have been hot enough to totally destroy the remains. Right. And mm-hmm. thought it had probably been caused by faulty wiring. Hmm. Now, in the days between Christmas and New Year's, George covered the former site of the home with five feet of dirt to make a memorial. And they did eventually, like, plant a bunch of flowers on the site of where the house is at to kind of, like, make a memorial for their their missing children. Mm-hmm. And then they did issue death certificates for Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty. Okay. So, from... The get-go, the Sauter family believed that there were way too many strange things about the fire that pointed away from accidental and tried to put together the pieces of what happened on that night. Now, a lot of these things I've already mentioned. Yeah. There was the the odd noise that Jenny heard on the roof shortly before the fire started, the ladder going missing from the spot mm-hmm. where it was permanently kept. The timing of the trucks not starting when they had been in perfect working order only hours beforehand. And of course, the lack of human remains in a fire that wouldn't have been hot enough to turn bone to ash. Mm -hmm. So let's start there. Okay. I would say the truck not starting is not too – I mean, unless they were like, there's a spark plug missing. It's the 1940s. It's an old – ass truck. And if it's cold enough to freeze water, the truck's probably not going to (laughs) start. Yeah. And he had two, the way it sounded to me, so he had two trucks and the way it sounded to me is he tried to start both of them and neither of them would start and both had been driven like earlier in the day. So it did seem odd, even if it was cold enough to freeze water, but. (laughs) I've been around enough old cars to know that that is not abnormal. (laughs) Yeah. It not turning over. Keep in mind. It's normal. (laughs) the day they were not old they would have been <laughs> yeah but I mean, I mean they're old to us now but just the way that you know those older cars are built yeah it's not abnormal to having to yeah. get it to start a couple like having to turn it over a few times before it actually starts yeah that's just yeah. the way those cars are so that to me like that's probably the least craziest of all of the things you've listed <laughs> right right so According to the Smithsonian Magazine, Jenny began experimenting with burning animal bones to kind of like see how fire (laughs) acts. And and that sounds weird, but it's like chicken bones, Mm -hmm. beef bones from like meat that they would consume. I mean, she's not like going out and killing animals. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just think about in modern times, like when we cremate somebody, there's still Mm -hmm. bits in there. And a lot of times, sometimes they even like, you know filter that out so you don't have chunks of teeth in there. <laughs> right. And every time she did these kind of like experiments of burning these bones, she always had charred bone left. Mm-hmm. There was also the fact that when they had searched the burn piles that were left over after the fire, there were some of the household appliances that were recognizable as household appliances mm-hmm. that were mm-hmm. found in the remains of the house. Yeah, that's back when all everything was like 
eight inches of fucking steel, <laughs> like all of those appliances. <laughs> but the question remains, like, how would a fire not be able to damage any of these appliances or at least leave them recognizable enough to know that that's what they are and yet still burn bone? I mean, I get it. But if you like, if you look at those old tiny refrigerators, they're like, I'm like, when I say eight inches of steel, I am not kidding. And they have lead paint, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. has some fire resistant properties. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they probably wouldn't be totally decimated regardless. But definitely was there do you know whether house straight just wood timbers? Was it brick? I am not sure. Because if it was reduced to rubble and it was a brick house, then that would have to be exceptionally hot. Yeah. Brick, the rate at which brick burns is way hotter than a wood timber house. Yeah. I would say from the sounds of it, they probably had a wood timber house if they're out in the middle of nowhere, rural Mm -hmm. Virginia. I would say it's probably wood timber. Um, So those go up super duper quick. I'm very fascinated by fire because my grandmother instilled a fear in me when I was younger about houses being set on fire because her house burned down twice. (laughs) Oh, fun. (laughs) When she was a child. Their farmhouse burned down twice, and my my great grandpa had to rebuild it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, both times. So, yeah, I know way too much about fire safety. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad. That's a good problem to have, I guess. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so Jenny also decided to talk to a crematorium employee, mm-hmm. and what she learned was that bones will remain after a body is burned for two hours at two thousand degrees. Yeah, and there's no way that was 2,000 degrees. (laughs) And the Sauter family home had been completely destroyed in a matter of 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. That definitely sounds like a wood house. (laughs) Right. But again, begs the question of, like, where is any sort of remains from – the bone would not have burned in that amount Mm -hmm. of time and in that heat. Like, that amount of heat. That lack of heat, I should say. Mm -hmm. To add to the mystery – There was a witness that had come forward saying he had seen a man with a block and tackle used for removing car engines Hmm. around the property, pointing to possibly a reason why the trucks didn't start. Somebody (laughs) literally stole their engines. (laughs) I mean, if that was the case, wouldn't the guy be like, um... I, my car's not starting. Let me pop the hood. Oh, the entire engine block is gone. Yeah, but, but I don't think I don't he know. would have thought to pop the hood and look while he's trying to save his kids from a fire either. Like <sighs> See, in, but in those the moment. Engines, those engines are extremely heavy. Yeah. Extremely heavy. It takes two people to yeah. really, and it takes a long time. Again, I have been around a lot of old cars. <laughs> yeah. If it's got a V8 in her, then it. <laughs> That's two people. <laughs> yeah. not. Uh, but I mean, if you have one of those, like, I mean, now they're like fancier dolly things. They're like hoists. Yeah, back then it was literally but, you wrap a chain and it's just like a metal pipe on a yeah. stand. <laughs> so that <laughs> and was a thing. someone on the other end pulling the fucking chain up. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was one thing. Um, the family also spoke with a telephone repairman who had come to look at the, at their telephone wires Mm -hmm. and were surprised to discover that their wires had actually been cut Mm -hmm. which does explain why the phone didn't work but they initially assumed that the wires had been burned or melted right Mm -hmm. so that's a little weird 
Yeah, I definitely, it sounded like they were cut. Yeah. But then when you started talking about how they went to other someone's house and the fire department couldn't be reached, I was like, did they knock out all of the power in this town? Like, what's happening? <laughs> I gotta say, like, cutting the lines of emergency services is... That's a baller move now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's definitely thinking ahead, for sure. Mm-hmm. So when they thought about witnessing the fire, the Sodders remembered that they had seen the lights on in the house as the blaze consumed it. Mm -hmm. And George had recently updated the old wiring in the course of installing a new stove, pointing away from faulty wiring as a cause. Not saying he couldn't have installed it wrong, but it wasn't like old wiring in the house. It was brand new. Yeah. I I mean, did if... So he probably updated it so that it was like not knob and tube wiring anymore, which is highly flammable. Probably, yeah. Even back then, I would say, because like uh, they had, because um, I have some older appliances from the early 50s, late 40s. It's still, the they're like cloth covered, you know, yeah. like uh, plugs yeah. and things. So it's not like the plastic cases that we have now are it's like a little bit safer and you can tell when something is on fire. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not saying it definitively points away from an electrical issue, but, but probably not as <laughs> it makes it a little less likely. Yeah. So as far as the noise that Jenny heard of what sounded like a rubber ball hitting and then rolling down the roof, when they had, There was a day that they had gone back to the site of their house after the fire had occurred. And while they were walking the property, they found a hard rubber object in the yard. And (laughs) it's unclear whether the object was like taken to be identified by a professional. But George seemed to think that it resembled a napalm pineapple bomb. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) Yeah. So I tried to, there, there was a couple of things. Um, I'm going to share my screen with you really quick because when I looked for napalm pineapple bomb and looked at images, there was some Mm -hmm. like this Mm -hmm. that looks like a, it's like a pineapple. It very much looks like pineapple. Mm hmm. But then there's some like this, and I'm like, is I don't think that's what that just looks like a that's grenade. Just a regular grenade, yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably more like that. these. Do they have napalm back then? Why am I thinking that napalm was like exclusively Vietnam era? <laughs> I mean, it might have been. I'm not Maybe honestly sure, but he he knew about it enough. <laughs> uh huh. Let's see. Did when was napalm invented? <laughs> We're just googling all kinds of weird shit today. We're going to get flagged hard. It was, I know. Bomb bomb. it was invented in 1942. So yeah, it would have been okay, around. Right. He did, I believe, because he's actually, George is actually an, originally an Italian immigrant. Mm-hmm. And so I believe he did do some military service for Italy. Yeah, they're, re- they're required to do at least yeah. two years in Italy. Yeah, before he uh, immigrated Fun over fact, to the U.S. This is why Benito Mussolini started a revolution. Because he didn't want to serve in the military. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. That's what all good dictators do. They're like, wham, military service. I just want to rule the country. Wham. Exactly. <laughs> and then he makes it militarized. It's like, what? yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's interesting. I wonder if he, how long had he been living in the U.S.? Do you know? 
It was mentioned somewhere. I would have to pull it up. Let's see. I bet you he, because Mussolini took control of Italy way before World War II. Yes. I bet you he was was all up in that fascist dictatorship. (laughs) Yeah, I, I will say that it will, we'll talk about Mussolini in a minute. Ooh, I love I love talking about Mussolini. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we will we, potato headed baby. <laughs> he looks like yeah, a giant we'll, baby. <laughs> we will definitely. Let's see. So he was born in Italy ahead. in 1895. <laughs> he immigrated to the U.S. when he was 13. Okay, so yeah. it would have been early 1910s. Yeah, that's 1920s. definitely uh, Italian Revolution time. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that'll this will actually I think it's gonna come up here in just a second. So excellent. <laughs> the Sodders, they as they're trying to rack their brains for like what could have happened, they started to think of events in the of in the months leading up to the fire, remembering a time when a stranger came by the house inquiring about any hauling work um that they might have had. When the stranger <laughs> He was like looking around the house for stuff that might need to be hauled away. He went to the back of the house. He pointed out a couple of fuse boxes saying, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday. (laughs) Even though the power company had recently evaluated the fuse boxes to be totally fine. Like they had Mm -hmm. just come out and looked at them. They were like, now these are all good. Shortly after that, the Sodders had a visit by a different man who was an insurance salesman trying to sell them life insurance. Now, George (laughs) declined the offer, and the man got super angry, saying, quote, Your goddamn house is going up in smoke, and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty marks you have been making about Mussolini. End quote. Oh, Okay. <laughs> so some black shirt retribution. <laughs> right. So George was very outspoken um about his opposition to the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. There were I think in the area that he was in a lot of Italian immigrants who had come over and he used to get into like arguments with other members of the immigrant community about his opposition to Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just you know, <laughs> there is. Well, I'll get into it in a little bit too. <laughs> There's more on this later, but at the time, they didn't really consider these threats. They didn't take them seriously. But like in hindsight, looking back on it, it's like okay, that's a little sketch. Yeah. Yeah. The family also recalled that just before Christmas, one of the older Sodder boys had remembered seeing a man sitting in a car in a nearby road, like intently watching the youngest children come home from school. Again, didn't think much of it at the time, but like in hindsight, it's a little, little weird. As the Sodders continued their own investigation into what happened that night, reports of sightings of the five missing children began coming into authorities. First, a woman reported witnessing all of the children passing by in a car that was fleeing from the fire on the night the fire happened. Hmm. Then another woman reported seeing the kids at a tourist stop about 50 miles west of the home where they had stopped for breakfast. She claimed that they were in a car with Florida license plates. 
And then there was a third report from someone at a Charleston hotel who claimed to have seen four of the five kids along with two men and two women of Italian descent stating, again, according to uh, Smithsonian Magazine, quote, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning, end quote. So, there is some theories that it possibly had something to do with the Italian mob. Mm-hmm. Um, after these arguments about Mussolini, getting this kind of threat for these comments on Mussolini, and then having straight up Italians like being seen with a bunch of kids. The mob, though, I feel like most of the mafia was against the fascistas. Maybe. Or maybe I, it's don't know. I mean, well, in Italy. The yeah. bla- like the the black hand. I feel like they had an understanding because they were still allowed to operate, but I don't feel like they were yeah. like actual out and out fascists. Yeah. Well, and That's my other thought would be: Would there be the like Mussolini supporters in the U.S. that were here to oh, yeah. make money <laughs> on criminal enterprises to send back to the dictator? To like I don't know what fund his war, right? Criminal enterprises, but there are. I mean, there were Nazis here too. Like there well, right, were definitely yeah. uh, sympathizers. There were definitely people who were here to garner support for the fascist movement. Yeah. So that doesn't sound too crazy for me. No. Yeah, the trying to make money part. I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know about that. Well, maybe, um, but you know, it's. <laughs> I imagine some of the trying to get support happened within Italian mobs or mafias somewhere. Definitely. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That's very I have no interesting. Idea. These are just a theory. This is just theory. See, when my initial thought was it sounded like somebody was just trying to steal their children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like right? womb raiders. The kids? Yeah. Like we're going to take half your kids and sell them somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Because that actually would not have been that out of the ordinary orphan trains anyone (laughs) yep exactly that was right around this time too Jeez, Mm -hmm. exactly that was my initial thought i was like okay because those were the younger kids that were upstairs right yes yeah except for the youngest the Mm three-year-old but yeah so that's more of a desirable age demographic to sell a child right (laughs) right you could still that's still in the age you know area where they would forget about their parents pretty easily i don't know about that because we're talking let's see five eight nine twelve mm-hmm. and fourteen i think one two three four no five and eight for sure five eight nine twelve and fourteen yeah five and eight nine, yeah but 12. like those older kids i would say probably yeah. not yeah and two, like, the ladder was missing. So it definitely, like, originally, when you said that, I was like, it sounds like someone's stealing their kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Satters were desperate to find any information as to what happened to their children. Even going so far as to reach out to the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who said he would like to help, but he could. they could only come in if 
they were invited by local authorities, which <laughs> are they did fucking not... vampires? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to be invited. Time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the local law enforcement did not take them up on that offer. They were like, "Fuck you, we got this," but they didn't. Well, yeah. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover is a bit of an asshole. So. <laughs> yes understandable so instead this otters hired a private investigator named cc tinsley now tinsley was able to find the insurance salesman who had earlier threatened george senior and discovered that this gentleman was actually on the jury that decided the cause of the fire was accidental uh-huh very okay. strange mm-hmm. additionally Tinsley uncovered a story about the fire chief saying to close friends that he had actually discovered a heart in the remains of the house. And (laughs) instead of bringing the heart forward, he hid it in a dynamite box and buried it on the property. Okay, first of all, I have so many (laughs) questions. Um, Yeah, a whole fucking heart is just like... "Mm." Perfect. Preserved. <laughs> so Okay, buddy. <laughs> Tinsley was able to convince the chief to dig up the box and they took it to go get tested and it was determined that it was beef liver. Okay, wait a minute. If the house is hot enough to burn a human, but not fucking beef liver in their refrigerator, I have so many questions. <laughs> so what happened is the chief decided to get this beef liver and plant it in a box on the property, hoping that Mm -hmm. while they were searching that one of the uh, Sauter family would find it and sort of like pacify the family. Okay. To like (laughs) not be so (laughs) adamant about their missing kids. (laughs) Because they're going to be like, oh, this is definitely human. Do you know how big a fucking beef liver is? (laughs) I don't. but like a heart. They're massive. Okay, see, now I got I'm doing a lot of Googling in this one. Beef. Really? Why didn't he get a a pig heart? That's probably the closest in an anatomy to a human heart. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could (laughs) see how this might look like a heart. Now look up human heart. (laughs) Beef Uh. liver. No, absolutely not. It's a flat lobe. Get out of here. It is, but... (laughs) What if it was in a fire? Okay, you're right. This would not be anything. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Fair. No. And two, like a human heart is like tough. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's like it's a it's the like a really big, dense muscle. And a beef liver, because I've had beef liver before, it's like soft. And I want to well, say floppy. I'm, sure I'm going to say floppy. He was not <laughs> banking on the fact that if one of the Sodder family found it, they would take it out of the box and give it a good squeeze. Like, I mean, but if they're a farm family and they're Italian, they have definitely ate beef liver. Oh, yeah. So they would oh, yeah. definitely know that that's a piece of meat to eat and not a human heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... The Sodders continued to collect any information they could over the years following, um, with tips and sightings occasionally coming in. In 1949, the family decided to cert, like, re-search the, pro- the property and did another excavation, and they found a few small objects, including shards of vertebrae. Mm. Now, when these pieces were tested, it was 
determined that they belonged to somebody upwards of 22 years old, which is like way older than yeah. the oldest missing child was 14. Mm-hmm. So that have to be a big kid. <laughs> yeah. And the bones didn't sign any, the bones didn't have any signs of charring or like fire damage or anything. Mm-hmm. So, with no other option, the Sodders put up a billboard offering a $5,000 reward, later increasing it to $10,000 for information leading to finding the children. And let me – I'm going to show you a picture of this billboard. Look at this billboard. It's like they have – Oh, it's like a weird mausoleum memorial. Yeah. It's not like a normal-looking – No. That what you would think of as a billboard. And it has the pictures of their five children, one, two, three, four, five. And this picture at the end, which we will get to in just a minute. Oh, they said kidnapped. Yes. Ages yes. 5 to 14 kidnapped. The officials blame defective wiring, although lights were still burning. <laughs> Weird way of putting it. Burning after the fire started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then it goes on to say, the official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in in the residue, and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. Again, weird thing to put. (laughs) Yes. What was the motive? Ooh. (laughs) What was the motive of the law officers involved? What do they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? And then there's a note about the picture. And this is kind of mm-hmm. – they also have a, a wanted poster that had pictures of all of the children on it. Oh, wow. $5,000 reward. And again, goes on to say there wasn't any evidence of them found in the fire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of the stuff that they were putting out. Mm-hmm. And – after they started putting these this this information out there, they did receive a couple of tips, including a claim that Martha was in a covenant in St. Louis. <laughs> okay. They got a tip from somebody who had overheard an incriminating conversation at a bar in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but none of these leads really panned out. The final worthwhile tip came in in 1968 when after more than 20 years since the fire, Jenny received a letter from Kentucky with a photo of a man in his mid-20s. <laughs> the back of this photo had a had – a, it was – it's like weird and cryptic note on it. This is what it said. It said, quote, Louis Satter, period. I love brother Frankie, period. I Lil – I-L-I-L, boys, period, A90132 or 35, period. Can't make heads or tails of that, but... I-L-I sounds like is living in. Oh. Um, it sounds like a address, a rural address. Uh, usually rural addresses have numbers and letters. Uh-huh. Um, what was the beginning part of it again? Uh, it said, Louis Satter, I love Brother Frankie. And that one. Yeah. I'm not sure what that one's all about. Brother Frankie? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but the, I, the rest of it sounds like uh, location. 
I Lil Boys. Is it B-O-Y-S? Yeah. Is there, and that was from Tennessee, Kentucky? Is there a Boys, Kentucky? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, Snoopy. (laughs) I know. Boys, Kentucky. No. Hmm. There's a <laughs> there's a band called Kentucky Boys. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I don't know. So after receiving this picture, the Satters believed that this was indeed their son Lewis and tried to make contact with this person in Kentucky, but they were ultimately unsuccessful. They believed so much that this was their son that that sixth uh, picture on the billboard was added as a current version of Lewis. That's what that's that sixth uh, picture was on the billboard Mm -hmm. and they actually got a copy of this picture enlarged and had it sitting on their uh, mantle in their home sadly uh, George died in 1968 still searching for his children Um, Jenny lived until 1989 when the billboard came down after her death the children continue to investigate coming up with their own theories including again this is all from the Smithsonian quote The local mafia had tried to recruit him and he had declined. They tried to extort money from him and he refused. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire and offered to take them someplace safe. They might not have survived the night if they had. And if they lived for decades, it was and like if it was really Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. End quote. That's kind of like mm-hmm. just some of the theories that they threw around. The surviving Sodders still believe that their siblings did not perish in that fire, but honestly, hopes of finding them become thinner and thinner as the years go on. Mm-hmm. To be honest, there's just not that much evidence out there to lead anybody in a particular direction. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is the mystery of the Sodder family fire. Hmm. Lots of weird stuff in that one. Yeah, that is really weird. I just pulled up the, it's, someone wrote that the zip code that, like, they said that the numbers in the letter that was given looks like a zip code in Palermo in Italy. Oh, what? That would be wild. Yeah. Then they'd somehow have to get the, which wouldn't be difficult, but they would somehow have to have the letter postmarked from Kentucky. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. It could have been someone who was living here. Right. Very yeah. weird. And then someone else says, is it a visa number? That's also interesting. Like an international visa? Yeah. So like um they assign you like a an, a code number when you um uh try to obtain a visa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I think the zip code is pretty convincing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it that's what it seemed like to me. The A90132 or 35, which could mm-hmm. be like, it's either 32 or 35. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I thought immediately seeing that. But Yeah, yeah, address, zip code sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. If you need something to listen to while you're trying to solve these mysteries, why don't you uh, check out this podcast? Hi, I'm Laura Marley, host of How to Be Less Awkward. My life is just like a huge, discombobulated jumble of awkward. <laughs> I'm really excited to bring you true life stories from some wonderfully open and funny people. <laughs> I didn't believe my story because I'm an 11-year-old kid. My friend was like, yo, man, this is a boy hole. 
I definitely felt pressure to frisbee. I mean, it was my first big boy job. I don't remember when I finally recognized this is a third nipple. We hope you check out the podcast. Okay, bye now. All right, folks, that has been our podcast. Another one <laughs> in the bank. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah that was i always like looking at some um unsolved mysteries because well to be frank they're mysterious yep they sure are <laughs> yeah I, I get into my uh i get into my unsolved mysteries mood but yeah yeah mine was just purely because i was like well i like doing the old timey ones because the original one that i was looking for had happened in the 40s as well um, out in Rockford. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like the other issue I was running into is their uh, newspaper the that are out there, like they haven't digitized all of them. Yeah. Which is like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> yeah. And especially right now, you can't just like go to libraries to do research. Mm-hmm. And it's just not happening. It's just it's just so very confusing. But the very fact that there was just, like, no access to information was something that was just making me so annoyed. And I was like, we need to do unsolved murders because (laughs) this needs to stop. (laughs) Research needs to be easier. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. If you liked this episode, you can find more like this at thebedtastecrimepodcast.com, where we have all of it. All the episodes. <laughs> we got all, there. all the things. Mm-hmm. It'll link you to everything. Merch, Over a hundred. YouTube, Patreon. It's all there. <laughs> it's all there. Anything you want, you can find it there. Do you have anything else to say, Janelle, before we close up? Well, our anniversary is coming, and I hope you got us a pretty sweet gift, because we're getting you guys a gift, and that's just not fair. Uh- <laughs> a gift of our faces. <laughs> Yes, we are bringing back the Corrin stream for a wonderful anniversary episode with the date to be announced soon. Yes. So keep an eye out on our social media because we will be announcing when you can see us. It'll be sometime in the evening as previously done in our Corrin stream. So you can a hang out with us. A one night reunion. We'll have anniversary dinner <laughs> on YouTube Ooh, with each that other. Would be pretty good. <laughs> that would be and good. And then you guys yeah. get to watch us eat on stream. Yeah, we can muck. We can mukbang the, the podcast. Yeah, true crime mukbang. <laughs> oh my god, let's do true crime mukbang. <laughs> I'd be down and for that. It'd be fun. Nobody watch. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so we do have that going up. You can keep an eye out for that. But for now. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, The Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Ciao, baby. <laughs> nice. Ciao. Because Italy. Because Italy. Ciao. <laughs> yeah. Arrivederci. What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. 
This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.